Well, g'day there and welcome to the Oak City Church podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today for another encouraging message from our Sunday gatherings of Oak City Church. If we can connect with you in any way, please see us at oakcitychurch.com.au or check out our socials online. We hope to see you in person soon. Good to be with you guys um, this morning. I think uh, we've been tracking with your journey as a church. Vicariously. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. It's so great to actually sit in this amazing community of people and see in the flesh and just get a really beautiful sense that something God is great to be here to impact um, this city. And it's a city I also have a heart for um, for a number of years. I only just stopped recently, but the last eight or nine years working with uh, youth justice in Blacktown and doing stuff here with the PCYs at various times um, with young people. Um, and just to know that this group, this particular group of people is here, not only here in Blacktown, but here in this building, it's just, um, yeah, just fills me with joy and hope for what God might do um, in and through you. And so just a pleasure to be with you this morning. And, um, uh, yeah, Charlie sent me through a, a short passage, and may I shorten it even more. There's three verses, and I just want to like now end on one. He's like, hey, come on. I might leave you a little bit more words to do preaching, but uh, just this beautiful passage from the book of Ephesians. And I'll just have it up on the screen. I don't know if you've got my slides there. It's all right. Part of the heart of this church, you know, getting to know um, Charlie, particularly hearing his heart and knowing that's reflected in your heart, uh, is that you as a church, not only you, but your neighbours in your city might know God, the Father, better. They might know as he actually is. And today I want to just pick up on this beautiful prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. It's a funny letter because all of the other letters seem to come out of some sort of problem in the church. It's not obvious reading the book of Ephesians what their problem is, but it seems like the heart of Paul's heart for the church in Ephesus is for a deepening awareness of the Father, who he is and who they are in him, a maturing of their faith, that they, they might be this beacon, this life, this city from which the gospel is sent out. And part of his prayer for them, so I might just read it. Um, Two slides forward or a few slides forward. In chapter 17, pray, uh, verse 17 of chapter 1, he prays this. Keep asking like, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better, so that you might know him better. I want to talk about three things because I don't know if this is a church pricing, but perhaps it's just 3.7. <laughs> why, why our knowledge of God matters. How we come to know God as He actually is. And what difference that actually makes in our life. So, why does our knowledge of God matter? Why do our beliefs around who the Father is matter? Um, A.W. Tozer, who's just a brilliant um, author from the early part of the 20th century, wrote The Pursuit of God, which um, is just his reflections on his own journey to knowing the Father in a more intimate way. He makes this really amazing claim, I think it's on the second slide there, 
He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I wonder what the mental picture is in your mind that you have of God. So as you worship Him, as you pray to Him, to what Father do you pray? How do you see God? How do you relate to Him? What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's an odd claim, but what he's saying is more than our family of origin, more than our ethnicity, more than the place we grew up in or where we went to school or our postcode or our occupation or our income, what we, what comes to our minds, what we believe, how we see the Father is the most important thing about us. Here's what he's getting at. I think it's this idea that we become like what we worship. So our lives move in the direction of what we worship. Um, James K. Smith says, we are what we love. We are what we worship. Um, Tozer went on to say, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any man or woman a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when we think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. It's quite powerful. What he's saying is, basically, what we think, believe, our mental image of God will direct the course of our life. And I would say for better or worse. It's a beautiful thing because the extent that we have the kind of uh, a right understanding of who God is, our lives will move in that direction. Our worship forms us. So if we're worshiping, worshiping God as He actually is, we will be formed into His likeness. But the flip side of that is if we have a defective view of the Father, then our lives will move in the wrong direction, we will be pulled away from Him. So what we think about God, what we know about God, really matters. And it has profound implications for who we are and the direction of our lives. And, and part of the problem that uh, I and I guess we would observe in our culture is that often we end up with a view of God who looks a lot like us. Um, we know that we're created in God's image, often we return the favour <laughs> and we seek to create and fashion God in our own image. We have a view of the Father that comes out of our own kind of self-centered desires and we craft a God to fit our felt needs and desires. How do you know if you've created God in your own image? He pretty much agrees with everything. He always affirms and never challenges you. He really calls you to truly sacrifice and give up stuff. He loves all the people you love, but he hates the same people that you hate. <laughs> I think above all, he's tame and he's predictable. I think because he's tame, you never get mad at this God, but you also never hear more of this God. You're never blown away by him, you're never kind of 
have that holy fear. Um, of course, this God is a figment of your imagination. He's someone that you've created. So guess what we believe about God often says more about us than it does about him. And I think this is how we move to, or the church moves to these kind of really, what we say, these gross kind of theological errors. Things like the prosperity gospel. Like, how does that happen? How does that come out of the scriptures we read? How it happens is that, you know, our own selfish desires for wealth, for prosperity, for material blessing, for comfort, they're just projected onto God. He becomes this cosmic genie who is there to dish out material blessings to us. When we fashion God in our own image, it's not that we do away with the scriptures, it's that we put them through a filter of our faulty theology. When we begin to sift out those passages that might affirm our view of God, rip them out of their context, and we construct a theology around ourselves and what we wish God was like, as opposed to what God is actually like. I mean, prosperity, it's easy to pick on that to an extreme version, but related to that, what I see just infesting the church is this spirit of consumerism, this culture of consumerism, that we're just swimming in so much that we barely even realise how shaping and formative it is. Um, the worldview of consumerism places self squarely at the centre to your needs, your desires, your satisfaction, your pleasure, your fulfilment is absolutely paramount. That is what matters. And so when that is our dominant worldview from which we operate, and our culture has to, even if we're, if we're just not thinking about this, our culture will kind of ingrain this thing without even realising it. What it does is we start to commodify the world around us. And what I mean by that is everything and everyone is a sign of value based on how useful they are to us and what we can get from them. And it's not just things that we commodify, objects. We commodify people. We even commodify God. What I mean by that is that God is only... His worth is based on how useful he is to us. Um, there's a quote of a scrub on the screen here from the theological sky, Jetani, who writes this Consumerism reduces God from a day into a commodity. His value, like everything else, is determined by his usefulness to the user. He becomes a means to an end. Is presented as a useful tool that supplies us with our desires and expectations. As one sociologist knows, in our consumer culture, we come to view God as part cosmic therapist and part divine butler. So this view of God is so prevalent in the church today. And we see it in our friends who fall away from faith in the moment something is tough or challenge them or they need to sacrifice or um, they go through some experience that. Um, of suffering or pain. So God is only of value to me when I'm getting something from him, when he's satisfying my felt needs. Then we'll just chuck him out like any other product the moment he's not useful to us. And, and the church buys into this, like we set ourselves up to 
feed this consumerism, to create church as a product that appeals to our culture. And this is just one example of a faulty idea about God. And I just want to break up my sermon and give you guys a pause before we dive into this passage briefly. Just to challenge yourself, maybe turn to the person next to you. What are some of the faulty or distorted views of God that you see operating in our world? Maybe you've operated out of it, like maybe this is personal, but maybe this is something you see or observe. What are some of the faulty views? I'd love to hear them from you um, in a moment. So just take a minute or two um, to discuss with people around you.
And actually Steve's saying something similar. We have this idea of like God is good, but then we think, well, that means that I need to feel good all the time. If I'm not feeling good, then somehow God's goodness is brought into question. Yeah, that far off disinterested God. Yeah. The mistakes of humans are God's fault. Yeah. You know, like revolution, like not, no crusades, like the church, like all those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. That's God's fault. Yeah. How can you believe the fairy in the sky? Yeah. Like what yeah. says? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But isn't it interesting? So here's something to be aware about in the culture that we're seeking to reach and without this music. So often, the God that people have rejected is one of these faulty views of God. And so for us, it's about embodying and providing a window into what God is actually like, which actually is. And people who feel like they've rejected God are actually encountering him for the first time as he is. So it's worth keeping keeping that in mind as you encounter that co-worker who oh. writes off your faith. Yeah. So how do we know God better? This is Paul's prayer to the church, that you might know him better. Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I think people have picked up on this passage and they've kind of made it in this like ethereal weird thing, blessing that only some Christians get this special spirit of wisdom and revelation. I think this is beautiful and gentle description of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer, giving us not just wisdom as we think about it, but spiritual wisdom or spirit-given wisdom and revelation of God. They're two things we need. We actually need them together. This is the path or way in which we gain great intimacy with God. Now, some of your Bibles will actually have the Spirit word capitalized. In other words, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. Some of them have it as a little mess. There's just no capitals in Greek, so it's hard to know. But if you read it in context, we know that the people he was talking to are these people that he was praising. They are um, renewed, regenerated, spirit-filled Christians. So he's not saying that they're receiving the Spirit for the first time or in a, in a new way. But I think it's still appropriate to capitalise it because what he's describing is absolutely the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. First of all, we need wisdom to know God. But if you read the book of Corinthians, Paul has a lot of kind of unwinding of what the Corinthian church, or generally the Greco-Roman world, thinks wisdom is. He says, if you try to know God according to the kind of conventional human wisdom of our day, you will always, always come up with one of these faulty versions of God. He says, this idea of the crucified Christ, the wisdom and power of God, is foolishness to our world. So according to the conventional human wisdom, the gospel is foolishness. It's stupid. You can only know God as he actually is by the spirit-given wisdom. 
but we also need revelation. And uh, not the last book of the Bible, by revelation, it just simply means that to know God as He is, God needs to reveal Himself to us. We will, we would never ever, ever by our own wisdom and our own understanding, conceive of a God who looks anything like the God we see revealed in Jesus. We just never get there. And I just want to demonstrate this need for revelation by just having a look at a couple of key kind of passages from the Bible, going way, way back, even to the time of Moses. Think about Israel at the time of Moses. They knew very little of this God, Yahweh. Their experiences of him were, yes, powerful and amazing. They'd seen him part the seas. They had some kind of oral tradition around this God who would, you know, call out Abraham and walk with them. They'd seen the plagues uh, descend on Egypt. And at the time of this passage that I'm about to read from in uh, Exodus 34, they're camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And they actually see the presence of God dwelling on top of the mountain in earthquake and fire and thunder. And that kind of makes sense, right? That's who you think God would be. Scary, far off, like just you're in fear of who he is. That kind of fit with the idea of the gods in the ancient Near East, that they were these powerful forces, unpredictable, untamed. You never know what they were kind of going to do next. But Moses, Moses wants to know this God. And um, Exodus uh, chapter 33, he eaves on a conversation that he's having with God. And in Exodus 33, it says, when Moses would speak to God, it's like I was speaking face to face. He had that kind of intimacy. And in this moment of intimacy, he says, God, show me your glory. And the word there kind of means your, your presence and your beauty. In other words, I want to know you, God, intimately. I want to know you as you actually are. Um, graciously, God says, I won't show myself to you because you see me to die, um, but I'll do you one better. I'll pass by you and I'll declare my name to you. And we see right on the screen, um, Exodus 34, 5 says, Moses goes up the mountain into this kind of terrifying presence of God, and God reveals himself to Moses. And look at the words he used uses to describe who he is. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Do you think the Israelites would have ever thought that that was what God was like unless that's what he told them? Mm-hmm. You would have never reached that conclusion. God's compassionate. This God who appears in power, past seas, destroys armies, is now on top of the mountain and fires about his compassionate. He's a God of grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding, filled with love and faithfulness. And he's a forgiving God. This is a watershed moment in the Bible. This is actually the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Because it's this self-disclosure of God that is so profound, that is so counterintuitive, that is so never what we could have arrived at by our own kind of ways of thinking. 
And yet this becomes the bedrock of the people of God. This is who our God actually is. This is the God we worship. And that profoundly shapes everything about the way in which we seek to live our lives following Him. Another watershed moment, I reckon, is when Jesus rocks up on the scene. Obviously. (laughs) 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 But you wouldn't necessarily think about I reckon one of the watershed moments in the New Testament is when Jesus teaches us how to pray to this God. And it begins with our Father in heaven. It's not that God was never called Father in the Old Testament. He was called the Father of Israel. Sometimes it was used as a metaphor for who he was, but it definitely wasn't a theme. Jesus rocks up and he starts calling God our Father. And the word he chooses, and you may not know this, is that Aramaic word Abba, our dad. That's who this God is, our dad, who we can know in that kind of intimacy. Another story that Jesus tells that has been just so profoundly life-shaping for my work of the Father. And he tells it in order to repair or bring into right alignment the faulty views of the kind of religious leaders of his day. It's the prodigal son story. And so I've got this image up here on the screen. It's a bit blurry, but it's a beautiful um, sketch by Charlie Maxey, who's a guy who's actually in the Alpha course. He goes and came to faith through um, Alpha in quite a profound way. And that really has like been infused into his artwork. And it's an image of the father in that story embracing the son. And I just think there's no more profound, for me, like life-altering vision of who God has actually is, as this picture of the Father kneeling in the gravel, embracing his return lost in the Son. And if we're not operating out of that view of who God is, we will just head off in all sorts of wrong directions in terms of how we seek to to him. Um, the next slide is just a one verse from that story. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, and there's that word again, compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And I think in that one image, in that one um, metaphor, picture, parable that Jesus shows, we see all of those characteristics of God that he declared to Moses on the mountain take on this beautiful, tangible form that's all captured in that image of the Father embracing his son. But of course, um, then Jesus starts saying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so it's not just what Jesus says about the Father, it's that he is the fullest revelation of the Father. And so that God on the mountaintop is the God we see most fully and perfectly in Jesus. 
we need to, <laughs> there's any filter we put our theology through. It's through the filter of Christ and building our understanding and our knowledge of God from Him. And returning to our passage, this spirit given wisdom and revelation, what it is that the spirit is doing in our life. It's helping us to relate to and see the Father as Jesus saw him, as Jesus knew him, in that Trinity intimacy, to have that kind of closeness and knowledge of him. That is a never-ending journey for us as Christians. We never get there. And so this prayer is always true. Paul and we always ought to pray that we have, might have more wisdom and more revelation of who the Father is. We can never, we'll never get there this side of eternity. And so we have this lifelong pursuit of growing in our knowledge of God. It's a beautiful invitation. And finally, I just want to end on a story of what this looks like in practice. Um, as I said, our, our vision of the Father dictate the course of our spiritual lives for better or worse. Um, we live with another family, um, we live in a big, weird old mansion that some family built for multiple generations and they all moved out of. And so, like, literally, there's kids running everywhere and they live upstairs, we live downstairs. And so, you, you live quite closely and you get to see the group and that and journey all of life with this other family. Over the last couple of years that we've been, we've watched Ellie, the wife who lives upstairs, go on this just quite profound journey of deepening intimacy and knowledge of God as her father. I'm actually in awe of it. So I look at her, I think we look at her, and we, we, we go, um, we want to get to where Ellie is. Um, it's just really quite beautiful. This is a mum of two crazy little kids. Um, in the figure that he's waking up, trying to wake up before them, which is a challenge. 530 and just spending like an hour and a day on their knees. Um, she comes from this family that like rides their organic foods, which is okay, nothing wrong with it. Um, but actually it, it actually stems from this fear in this particular family, not that family, like her, her family, um, this fear of like literally of cancer. So worried about getting cancer, it's this kind of irrational fear of something you can't control. That they do control everything that they eat through this lens of avoiding customers. That's been her story. Um, recently, she went for a scan, she got a new baby on her And they noticed a tumor in her ovary. They don't quite know what it is yet, but it's kind of big and scary looking. And it's worrying, and she's having surgery next week. I'm going to share this out so if you guys don't know sharing with you. She's now confronting the greatest fear of her family. I think we're more worried for her than she is. She has just had this utter, just profound, um, inexplainable, apart from the work of the Spirit, peace about her. Um, just such a deep and profound trust in the Father's heart. That even that diet, even confronting the greatest fear of her family and of her life to this day, it's barely shifted the dial on her relationship with God. 
And that is the extent, the profound extent to which our view of God can shape the way that we live out this walk of faith and face anything in life, which is this utter trust. And it, it goes so against that consumerist mindset of God. He's only of worth to me when he's like blessing me. This idea that, yeah, God is good, but it's only good if I feel good. Like it just destroys all of that and shows us that we can achieve this level of intimacy when nothing rocks us, when nothing shakes us, when nothing can stop us from loving the Father as Jesus loved the Father. So there is this garden of Gethsemane moment where she's confronted by this anguishing uh, event and she says, not my will, but yours be done. You've got this, whatever happens. It's not even this false view that I definitely will be healed. It's just trust that that may or may not happen and God is still good. And he's the exact same father that I knew last week before this diagnosis. It's just beautiful. So I just want to finish there. That's the kind of profound, shaping, formative influence that our view of God has in the way we live our lives. And something that certainly I aspire to. And I just don't think I'm there yet. So it's a beautiful, beautiful example. So I'm going to leave it there today. Why don't, why don't I just pray before us in the spirit of what we're talking about that um, the spirit might reveal God's love. Father God, Abba, Daddy. May we know you better, more deeply, more intimately, may we know you as you actually are, as you reveal yourself to us. God, we could have never imagined that the creator of this universe would also be the compassionate, gracious, intimate, loving, forgiving, merciful, just God that you show yourself to be. But where we go for where you are. Too love and therefore too real. I just pray that our lives will be more and more shaped by this vision of the Father, that we by the power of your spirit working in us might know the Father as Christ knows the That we might have that kind of intimacy with you. Lord, give us the wisdom to comprehend the vastness of His goodness. And give us an ongoing revelation of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.